one thing I always think about is I always, and in a good way to identify your passion or something you really care about, is I always made time for programming. Like even when it probably wasn't healthiest to do so, like I always made that time. I could have worked like a 10 hour day without programming once, and then I would program for two hours. Like I didn't have to, I probably shouldn't have, but I wanted to because that made me happy. And I think seeing that over a long time just made me realize that that was the direction I wanted to head back towards eventually. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. And I am joined today, as I often am, by my co-host, Ciara Ford from Apollo GraphQL, and my new colleague, Matt K, who is a is going to be a, a tech evangelist and a regular voice on the podcast. So welcome, Ciara and Matt. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much. Matt, for folks who don't know, you want to just tell them real quick who you are? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a software developer based out of New Zealand. I've been developing software for the last four years, uh, creating blog posts and YouTube content around more of the kind of like soft skills around being a software developer and uh, recently joined Stack Overflow to help out with the podcast and do some video stuff, which is going to be really exciting. So anyone's listening, keep an eye on this space. There's going to be some cool stuff happening. Okay, great. So our guest today is Mitchell Hashimoto, and we were inspired to invite him on after seeing an announcement that he wrote about moving back into an IC role as an engineer. For folks who don't know, he helped to found and then run HashiCorp, which has built a lot of software products you've probably heard of. And we wanted to know about that whole journey from how he learned to write software in the beginning, creating a company and helping to run it, to stepping back into a role where he's just one of many independent contributors. So Mitchell, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm excited. I love this topic. So happy to talk about it. So usually we kick things off. We ask folks to, to date themselves a little. Tell us about what got you into the world of software and writing code. I believe I saw an article that had something to do with Neopets, which I think is going to make Sierra very happy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's true. Neopets and young love is how I got into it, I think. I had a middle school crush who played Neopets and I really wanted to <laughs> impress her. And yeah. so I wanted to become like super rich in Neopets. <laughs> and uh, I decided to learn programming because I wanted to learn how to make like bots and stuff to play Neopets for me. While one, while I was at school and two, because I had a limited computer time for my parents. And that's sort of how I started the journey, I would say, uh, getting into programming. See, people think NFTs are new, but people have been uh, forcing <laughs> computers to do work so they can own digital artifacts since way back when. <laughs> That's so funny. I find that a lot of people have got to start coding through Neopets or through MySpace. There are like so many people that yeah. if you ask them their story, it's those two. It's one of those two things. A lot of designers through like MySpace, I find like yeah. a lot of a lot more of the visual stuff because you can make your page beautiful and kind of like motivated people. That's what I find at least. Yeah, it was just open enough. Yeah, you naturally yeah. fall into like the JavaScript and everything else, and then yeah, oh, one day you wake up and you're a software engineer. It starts off with how can I put a unicorn on this, and then all of a sudden, ten years later, it's like oh yeah, founded a company, <laughs> did it, did the whole design system thing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so Mitchell, I heard you mention that you had limited computer time at home. You had to convince your your folks growing up that programming was going to be uh, a good use of your time? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of that. And I think just my parents were always big on 
sort of a balance and everything. And so, you know, I, I could go on the computer, but I also played sports and I had to, you know, read and do all this other stuff and hang out with friends. So they limited my computer time to force me to do the other stuff. And they didn't know I was programming. I mean, they didn't know what I was doing on the computer. So it probably wasn't until I went to college that, you know, I told them I'm going to major in computer science and they weren't not supportive. They just didn't super know what that was going to be. So I, I would say they were supportive. They were interested. They were just like less sure how good of a path that is. It's like when my son tells me he's going to be a professional video gamer. I'm like, don't be ridiculous. But on the other hand, people <laughs> are really a real that, thing. Yeah, make a lot more money yeah. than I do. So just let him follow his dream. Yeah. What happened in the in-between time between you doing the the coding with the Neopets and you majoring in computer science in college? Yeah, a lot of stuff. And I think that's a somewhat important question because it's sort of formative to what ended up happening with HashiCorp and everything. I ended up being successful at making sort of these bots for games and I expanded to other games. And I, I the game to me became making the bots and less the game. So I just wanted, I found all these different games that I could make bots and other stuff for. And I actually ended up starting like an online business, like $25 a month to get access to all my stuff, whatever I build, but they're going to be bots. And I did okay. I mean, I had like a handful of customers that actually would pay that. And I think that was my first foray into like entrepreneurship. And as a, by then early high school person making, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month from this thing that felt like unlimited money to me (laughs) in high school, I was like blown away and being like, this is awesome. I like that people are using my stuff. I like that I could sort of make money doing this. And I, I like the actual programming. So that sort of led me down to just spinning up all sorts of failed, really, but all sorts of different ideas. I did like hosted forum software for a while. I did course registration software, uh, which was pretty successful, actually, and, and just a bunch of random stuff. And so it was always this hybrid between my love of programming and starting businesses around it and being impactful with it, I guess. For the bot business, was that like in the cloud? Did you run them for people or did they no, download no. something and then... Yeah, this is well before I got into like server side stuff. This was like yeah. straight up downloaded Windows EXEs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. I'm really curious because now we have Squarespace and a lot of these kind of Shopify and all these online platforms mm-hmm. where you can just upload a digital asset, sell it infinitely scalable. I'm assuming you didn't use a platform like that when you were selling no. these bots. So how did you, did you have to build out your own custom solution to be able to sell this stuff? Like, how did that work? Yeah. And so that's, it's funny you hit on that because that's exactly how I got into like the forum reselling stuff because there was this, it felt to me sort of like this underground movement, but there was this sort of movement community that I was a part of that was taking off the shelf open source forum software. Like at the time it was like V Bulletin and PHP BB and some other stuff like that and turning that into a full-blown content management system. So it's all open source, sort of forking it or modding it and making it be able to do anything. So I sort of took open source forum software, which already had a user registration and all a system and moderation system and stuff like that. And I modded it to add PayPal purchasing. So I used PayPal for everything and subscriptions and stuff like that. So PayPal was the key to having an API for processing transactions, but I tied it together with this forum software, which worked also because if you paid, like I hooked it in, so you got access to like member only forums and that's where you would find the downloads and you could talk to me or talk to anyone in that group and so on. And then eventually people were like, I want my own forum. And so that led to phase two, which is like, I wonder if I can make a forum as a service system 
Yeah. Mm. I'm not sure that I would say I ever went here, but some friends of mine used to go on this cracked forum to uh, download the AAA PC games that were coming out. And that was the kind of place where, yeah, you could uh, find people who would sell you all sorts of great software if you were willing to meet them and hang out with them a little bit. For anyone who's uh, tuning and listening, Ben winked as he said friends. (laughs) (laughs) If you remember the cracked forums, good on you. So yeah, let's jump forward just a little bit in time, talk a little bit about yeah the, the founding of, of HashiCorp and what was it that led you to founding that particular company and what was it like to be you know in, in an executive role really? So I guess to make the precursor a little shorter, as we've already seen like how I got from Neopets to the forum software and so on, like I think everything followed this natural path of like solving my own problems and then building businesses around solutions I built for my own problems. And you know, we have a little dot, dot, dot there and skip some time. But eventually, one of my own problems was building sort of repeatable dev environments and other sort of cloud automation tooling, for lack of better mm-hmm. description right now. And I open sourced that. And I'm super honest when I say that, that I had with that specifically, with that open source work, because this forum software I talked about, the Neopets stuff I talked about, that was never open source. But for this open source work that I did with Vagrant and Packer and Terraform and all the stuff that we ended up building, I had zero intention of ever starting a business or ever making any money from it. Like absolutely zero. I was in college and I thought that at best, what this would help give me is a resume booster to help me get a job. That, yeah. that was where my mindset was. And what ended up happening was I did get a job and I did get a job thanks to some of my open source work. But as I was doing that, the open source kept getting more and more popular. And I loved working on it. And I loved the open source community. I loved that whole aspect of it. But it got popular to a point where I felt that working on it in parallel to having this career that I was building was sort of unhealthy to my life because I was working a typical nine to five job with a commute going into an office. And then I would like eat dinner, try to go to the gym. And then I would work on open source software from like 8 p.m. until like two in the morning and then repeat, right? Like go to sleep, wake up, go to work. You know, I was basically programming for two thirds of the day, context switching, all sorts of stuff. And I wasn't socializing as much. I wasn't dating, things like that. And I felt okay, but I could just recognize on my own that this isn't sustainable or healthy. And so I sort of made this decision. It felt like sort of a forced decision, I say now, because there was no way, especially then, I think there's a lot more options now, but there's no way then to have sustainable open source for me to work on this full time other than to start something around it and try to figure out how to make money. And so I quit my job, started HashiCorp, and the goal was really to sustainably be able to work on these projects. I actually worked at a company like that before where that was like how things got started off. It started off as a side project that they did out of like almost pure necessity for themselves and they open sourced it and it got popular and it got to a point where it was like, I kind of need to choose between this or my actual job. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's definitely how it started. And, and like that manifested itself in many ways early on in the company, just as we tried to figure out how are we going to be a business? Because most businesses yeah. start with a business plan. And we started with a successful product project, but no business plan whatsoever. Yeah, so. right. I'm really curious, Mitchell, when you made that decision to go full time, was there anything going through your mind of... Like I'm taking a huge financial risk, quitting this kind of career path and moving to something that doesn't even have a business plan yet. And I'm assuming wasn't making any revenue because it was open source. So kind of like what was going through your head at that kind of inflection point where you're like, uh oh, like I we need to start making making money and getting start things start going. Totally. Yes to all of that. So prior to even quitting, I mean I was really torn what I wanted to do. So 
I asked, you know, friends and family and all my friends were pretty much unanimous that I should do this, but they're bigger risk takers. So, I mean, I think the really important person that I went to was my dad in particular, because he was always someone who was really, really careful and always had an opinion and sort of what I should do. And so I went to him and told him the whole situation. And I was just blown away because he, he told me like no hesitation was like, quit your job and start that as soon as you can. And it was so uncharacteristic of him that it gave me a lot of confidence being like, if he has that confidence, then this must be something I should try to do. And I think his point of view was just like the stage I was in my life. It was fairly low risk, you know? Yeah. Startups in general, high risk, but hopefully I could just find another job. Like engineering in some ways is really privileged in that way. So that was the hope. And that's when I got started. And after we got started, the second part of your question there is like making money. You know, when Armand and I started HashiCorp, we weren't sure yet if this was going to be a venture backed high growth business. Like we weren't sure if that's the path we wanted to take. So the initial path we did end up taking was a lot of contract work to help pay the bills. And, you know, we weren't paying ourselves much, but just like to cover rent and cover food, like really basic stuff. Otherwise it was coming out of savings, but we did a lot of contract work. And the first thing I ever started working on was a commercial plugin for Vagrant, which we ended up selling and which did end up ultimately sustaining the first few employees of the company for years. So you were sort of like a consultancy built around the open source products that you had helped create? Yeah. Initially the idea was we'll do that and then use that to fund future products. And I think what we ultimately realized was the ideas we had for the products we'd build and the number of engineers that it would require doing this in a sustainable way forever would be, it would take decades. And so, you know, we looked to venture capital as a way to change the mission to be a much bigger mission and then also to highly accelerate what we were trying to do. And so I'm wondering what was going through your head as like the company grows and you start to get further and further away from like the typical software engineer workflow of like coding and fixing problems and all that kind of stuff. I think that's perfect because I was naive, I guess, or was so young uh, mentally in, in doing this. I'd never done a startup before, never been a founder of a venture-backed startup before. So I didn't really know what to expect. And my original thought was I would start this. I was so passionate about building these tools. I would start this company and I'd be able to spend all my time building these tools. And that couldn't have been farther from the truth and the reality. And that, <laughs> one thing I quickly realized was, and I tell new founders this all the time, is when you start a company around your passion, it's not enabling you to work on that passion. It's enabling you to enable others to work on that passion and just realize that dream or that vision. So like you don't get to really be hands-on. So I would say I was, I was hands-on, you know, as much as I could. I fought it for a long time for the first year to three years, depending on how act, you know activity ebbed and flowed. But I was splitting my time so much with the managerial duties and executive duties as much as you could call someone an executive at that stage right but it was like financial management fundraising plans sort of ensuring growth thinking big picture how we're going to commercialize thinking about the next x hires that we have to hire things like that like i was spending a lot of my time doing all that so it settled in really quickly i think within the first 18 months i was programming as much as i could but probably working very long hours to do other stuff too. So this is something that's kind of near and dear to my heart where I've stepped away from a very technical role into something that is it is less technical. What was your kind of going through your head is you realize you've become further and further from a contributor. Like, did you find that you were worried about your technical skills kind of stalling a little bit? And what were you trying to do to kind of manage that over the time before you eventually went to a CTO role? 
the one thing I don't want people to think is that like I hated not programming or hated the jobs associated that weren't programming. Like I didn't dislike those jobs and I found actually being a manager really rewarding in a lot of ways. And I loved helping people grow and being a good manager, a try to be at time, you know, most times hopefully a good manager of sorts. But what I realized was that I derived a lot of my passion really was programming. Like the thing that drove me was really programming. So while I found the management stuff interesting and fulfilling in certain ways, it was taking away from this thing that gave me the most happiness of everything that I did. And so I wasn't worried about losing skills or anything because one thing I always think about is I always, and in a good way to identify your passion or something you really care about, is I always made time for programming. Like even when it probably wasn't healthiest to do so, like I always made that time. I could have worked like a 10 hour day without programming once, and then I would program for two hours. Like I didn't have to, I probably shouldn't have, but I wanted to because that made me happy. And I think seeing that over a long time just made me realize that that was the direction I wanted to head back towards eventually. And so, yeah, how did you devise, I guess, first the strategy of going back to CTO, talk a little bit what that was like, and then you took a real leap. My coworkers made me promise to ask, what's it like to be an IC when you were formerly the boss? Do people really treat you like an IC? So let's start at CTO and then we'll take it from there. So yeah, the CTO thing happened probably three or four years into the company. I don't fully remember the exact timing, but it was three or four years into the company. And that was really a realization of me actually actively disliking the CEO role, the executive team building, the financial planning, fundraising, all that sort of stuff. I joke that I started to realize being a CEO is a real job. I think prior to that, <laughs> I thought it was just someone that like sat behind a desk and like reaped the rewards or something. And I started to realize how bad of a job being a CEO is. Like, <laughs> I'm so shocked whenever I meet someone who likes being a CEO and like, how is this possible? But I started to figure that out. And I thought sort of, my point of view is one, I didn't like that. And two, I had an investor, someone on our board who told me something. They never pressured us, me and Armand, to hire a CEO or anything. It was totally our decision. But one thing he told us was, you know, startups have a 90 plus percent failure rate. And so for an investor to invest in a startup, it's because they think they've identified some sort of trait that could help beat those odds. And for us, that trait was always our engineering vision and our engineering ability. And so me spending time being a CEO was putting us into the odds of the 90%. It wasn't giving us the advantage we had to beat that 90%. And so he just made me think like, if this isn't something you really want to be passionate about, like do what makes you happy and do what will give the company the best chance for success. And, and me and Armand both thought that was being engineering leaders and not necessarily hands on keyboard, but engineering leaders rather than the CEO. And so that that's what really motivated us to pursue the CEO. Another way we put it is, I think we're capable of learning to be a CEO, but we would make mistakes and we would make all these mistakes. We wanted to hire someone who had sort of already made the mistakes and knew what to, what to do while we sort of, we wouldn't make the mistakes and knew what to do on the engineering side. So best chance for success. I'm sure now you're really appreciative of the investor who like pulled you to the side and told you that. I have moments now where I think back to like moments where, People said things like that to me and I was like, wow, I'm so glad I listened and that they were like honest, you know, because it helped me to make better decisions career wise. Yeah, I think, you know, similar to how my dad encouraged me to to really start it. I think it was this investor who really showed me it was okay if I didn't want to be CEO. I think in, in these highly uncertain times, like having that affirmation 
that something you want to do is okay and something that's atypical is okay because founders stepping down, me and Armand both like stepping down to bring in an outside CEO as early as we did was not typical and could be construed really badly and things like that. There was a lot of risk associated with it as well. So it was scary. And having someone saying, you know, it's okay, we'll always back you and things like that was really helpful. I have two real quick questions. First of all, who was the first person, the first brave soul to decline one of your pull requests? And do they have a little (laughs) plaque in the office somewhere? I don't know who that is. But I mean, I think that and this will get towards the what you said earlier about being an IC, about being an ex-founder. I mean, I think that from the beginning, we had a fairly respectful culture around PRs and intellectual honesty. So I don't know when that was, but I don't think it was a big deal. That's good. You, you did CTO for a while. I guess like, was it just a desire? As you said, you, you realized actually hands-on programming is where your passion really lies. It's something you're drawn to, even when it's unhealthy. You know, I can relate to that. There's I've been doing jujitsu and I'm pushing 40 and I keep getting injured, but I keep going back. And it's like, why am I doing this? It's like, well, I guess I must really like it. But yeah, like what CTO to IC, what what made you decide to make that jump? And I guess, yeah, like getting back in and actually writing code every day. What's that experience been like, especially, I guess, having left it for so many years and then coming back to like a, a sort of different tool set, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it was not as easy or obvious as the CEO to CTO role, because I liked being a CTO. That actually wasn't, whereas I actively disliked the CEO (laughs) job description, I liked the CTO job description. I I got it, and I thought I was not bad at it. And yeah, it was fun, but it was a relative thing, again, where programming was like way more fun and fulfilling for me. So for the CTO to IC switch, I mean, I didn't even think about it for a number of years. Very happy being the C- uh, co-CTO. And me and Armand found a really nice split because we're co-CTOs. So we found a really nice split in responsibilities naturally that I think made us both really happy in what we did. I spent a little bit more time within the company and Armand spent a little bit more time external to the company as a CTO in terms of meeting with customers and stuff like that. We overlapped a lot. So that's not super fair to say, but I would just say a little little bit on each side. And I was having a good time and I was embedding on teams and actually working on either new products or risky features or something like I was still hands on keyboard a bit. So I got that as well. But I think eventually, as the company kept growing, the job description changes a little bit. And as we started to hire more VPs and more and introduce like senior directors and directors, like my depth away from the actual engineers was growing and it became much more of a headcount planning, financial planning, visioning, like long-term visioning type of role. And I wanted to get a little closer back to the actual like solving a specific problem. And at the same time, we had grown to so many more people and so much, so many more products. And so I realized that the stuff I was doing as a CTO had to be done, but it would take all my time. Like I couldn't program anymore. I had to get rid of that part of it because <laughs> it was really important to do. And so I had this this fork in the road of like, do I keep doing this thing, which I don't dislike, or do I get back to programming? Or is there a way to get back to programming that I know I absolutely love? And I decided to talk to Armand and Dave's our CEO. It was probably like, we probably started talking about it three or four years ago, but just started talking about what kind of path that would take and if that's even possible. So, yeah. I actually really enjoy your story because I'm just getting started out in developer advocacy. And I think a lot about like the career trajectory of like someone 
in an engineering role or someone in a role like mine. And I always think that the typical like way that it goes is like you, you're a developer, senior developer, and then you become like a manager or director, eventually VP, whatever. And I'm always like, I wouldn't mind trying out something managerial within the next few years or so. But I'm always thinking to myself, what if I find out that I actually enjoy being an IC better? Do people even make like the reverse transition, you know, going back to that? So it's kind of cool to know that someone like jumped from CTO to like IC. Because it's like if someone can do that, then I definitely could go back to like being an IC from whatever I become in the future. Yeah. And I want to add like it heavily depends on the company culture, I'm sure. Some people, when I made this transition, said, you know, only a founder could have done this because they have the whatever political power or who knows to, to force this to happen. But I think it really depends on the company. But I want to be clear that at HashiCorp, like we've had many managers become ICs and, and vice versa. I wasn't the first to do it by any means. And more have done it since I've done it. And the reverse is true. So it's very possible. I'm sure it's very difficult in some companies. But yeah, it's very possible. Yeah, it was interesting to hear you describe how as it grows, the CTO role just kind of becomes CEO of the tech department and you're back to that sort of (laughs) high level logistical planning (laughs) and not really getting hands on. So I guess, yeah, before we go, I wanted to ask just a few questions about some of the products. So Terraform was one of the products you had started to create before forming HashiCorp, but then became one of the products internally. Is that right? Kind of. So Terraform, I had written down the idea and I had built a pro I wrote down the idea for Terraform in college. I actually blogged about it on Tumblr, like gave the idea away on <laughs> Whoa. Tumblr. In two, yes, in two thousand I don't know, eleven or something. Like we have the blog I have the blog post still and it's on I now put it on GitHub just, but it was like the day after CloudFormation came out or something. Mm-hmm. I wrote this blog which was like CloudFormation's great, but I want to see this instead. And it was just the blueprint for Terraform. And no one really built it. And then it became a real problem for me. And so I've started prototyping it at previous jobs and stuff. And then ultimately, I threw those away and then rebuilt it at HashiCorp in 2000, was it 13 or 14? So after the, the company was founded. So I guess what's so fascinating to, about that to me, and again, you know, I'm not a programmer myself, but I, I have a lot of these conversations, is just how often now the idea of infrastructure as code comes up in these conversations and how much you know of the work has moved into the world of clouds and containers and microservices. From your perspective, having had that idea in 2013 and now looking at the world now, what do you think about the way sort of like infrastructure as code turned out? And you know, looking forward five years from now, what would you want to build you know, so that developers can sort of make the most of this new approach to crafting whole organizations, essentially, crafting code bases? I mean, in some ways, I'm really pleased. And, and in other ways, I'm not surprised whether it was <laughs> me or someone else. Like, I just thought back to 2012, I mean, I thought that it was so obvious that codifying things was vastly superior in every way to doing things clicking around or imperatively or word of mouth or whatever it was. And so the fact that infrastructure is code generally you know, with Terraform, but also with stuff like Kubernetes and non-Hashicore products, that's the fact that that took off is relieving and not a surprise to me. Like the right choice one, in my view, <laughs> in terms of paradigm, not tool. Not saying Terraform was the right tool, but right. but the actual paradigm was right. And so I'm really happy. I mean, I think that going forward, the way I personally view things is humans and engineers go towards like less friction. How do you make things easier? They like complexity. So it might be easier, but I mean, more complex, but how do you make things easier? And so I think there's a variety of things right now that just still feel too difficult. And I'm like, this has to be simplified in some way and automated in some way. So 
I don't know any specific thing. I'm not going to try to like predict some specific thing, but I think big picture is just going to move towards more automation, more sort of sort of layer interoperability and things like that. That's what I would do anyways. And that's how I approach every problem. I'm like, why does this suck? And how do I make it suck less? Is like literally the question I ask with things. Yeah, I think I've seen that happening with a couple companies that we've talked to on the podcast too, where they're like creating products that the whole purpose is to make the process with infrastructure or other things less frictiony. I'm just going to yeah. make up that word. So make it more frictionless, I think is the better way to say it. So yeah. Definitely. The web is already quite a complex beast as it is. So the any ways that we can kind of simplify and automate and make sure that people aren't getting pinged at three o'clock in the morning to go on call to deal with a problem, the better. <laughs> yeah, <Yep>. absolutely. <laughs> Spoken from experience, Matt? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess the question probably on every developer's mind who's listening is, yeah, like, what is the tension like, you know, having had the founder title and the CEO and that, you know, sort of executive role in power, but then going back to IC, like, if your manager tells you he needs something on deadline, you don't think it can be done or needs you to work over the weekend, you know, how do you respond to that as an IC now? Yeah, so I think an important part of that is setting the culture from the beginning. And I think from the beginning, we set the culture that I've been pretty respectful of processes and things like that. It was different when I was the boss, I would say no, you know, at certain times. But being an IC now, I make it really clear going into a team, you know, most people probably don't need to do this, but I make it really clear going into a team, you're the manager, you tell me the process, we're going to use this tool for this, we're going to use that tool for this, and I'm, I'm going to do it because I'm just a member of the team. And so, you know, it's, I think at first, it's a little bit scary, I would say, uh, it'd be interesting to ask my manager what he, well, uh, yeah, what he <laughs> thinks, but they eventually understand like that I mean it, and I sort of act by my words and live my live them. And then it becomes really good. Like I got a message yesterday that was like, hey, I need this thing done by tomorrow, like a surprise, like, can you get it done by tomorrow? And I was like, sure. And I did. And so I think stuff like that, and same with my team, team members is like understanding they could reject my PRs, understanding they could bring alternate ideas up to the table. Yeah, I think it's all really good. I'm still obviously pinged for advisory stuff for senior level things. But I think one thing I always tell people is, it's very much like a pool thing, like senior level leadership will ask me questions or input about a specific thing, and I'll give it to them. But I don't know things anymore. You know, I'm in the same channels as you. I'm not in the executive channel anymore. I'm not on the executive mailing list. Like I don't talk to HR. I don't know what comp rates are anymore. Like I'm not part of those discussions. So like someone could tell me something and I'm not gonna like there's nothing I could act on specifically. I suppose, you know, some people say like I could pull some power card and like <laughs> call Armon up and be like, this person was terrible or something. I guess, but I mean, I, I would hope that people who work at HashiCorp realize that's so antithetical to our culture that I would never do something like that. And that's, that's the best I could do. I would have a hard time writing a performance review, maybe, of my former <laughs> CEO, but also you chose to go back to IC, so clearly you don't want a promotion. Yeah. I mean, you're ha if you're happy as a clam there, you can stay there as long as you like. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, my career, I'm happy fixed where I am. <laughs> yeah, taking servant leadership to a new level. I appreciate it. <laughs> so you, you've done the grind where you've started a company from scratch, you've led it to great success, and now you're kind of at an IC level again. Do you ever get that itch to start over and take something completely new, start that whole journey again, do it now with the experiences that you've had with HashiCorp and try and maybe not do it better, but relive that that whole journey. Yeah, I mean, I being an IC again has made me realize that I'm still, I still have a ton of ideas that I'm still very 
in my mind, creative and with things that aren't HashCorp related at all. And so I think I would, if, you know, if I wasn't at HashCorp, I think I would probably do something again, but I don't think I would ever do a high growth, like venture backed company ever again. It's just like, I know the steps you have to go through and I wouldn't want to go through those again. But I think, you know, when I think about it, like smaller software studios or sort of indie stuff, like I would do that, but I don't think I would do like a 2000 person company again, or try to. You have mentioned that you built the product, you did the CEO, you did the founder thing. For other founders who might be listening, who are technical, but don't want to go through the rigmarole and you know, stress and strife of being a CEO, do you think that's still a valid path for them to be a founder, but not take on that responsibility? I think you have to take it on for a period of time. I think you have to build the machine is the way I put it. And a mistake a lot of founders make is they make themselves a critical part of the machine. And I think my advice would be, and this is what I always ask myself, like explicitly on like a quarterly basis, I would be like, how do I build this company where they don't need me? And I think that that's the question you have to ask and don't give a person a fish, teach a person to fish, you know, that sort of thing. Like you got to get those skills out so that when you hire the CEO or hire your replacement, you know, they'll hopefully make similar thought processes as you in terms of decision-making, because that that's ultimately what a company is. It's like a, a unified mission and a unified way of thinking around a problem. And so you have to define that way of thinking. I think it's unavoidable that you have to be a senior leader for a period of time. But I think if you start from the beginning explicitly about building this autonomous, in a way, autonomous in terms of a lot of people, a machine that you could also step down. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. We're going to shout out the winner of a Lifeboat Badge, someone who came on Stack Overflow and helped save a question from the dustbin of eternity. Today, we will shout out Alexander Shapkin, how to recycle an application pool using a PowerShell script. So if you're curious, we have an answer for you. I am Ben Popper, the Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper, email us podcast at Stack Overflow, or leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. Matt, let the folks know who you are, where they can find you online. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. My name is Matt on Twitter, Matt Kanda. Love to see you around, talk about tech. Thanks. I'm C.R. Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL. You can find me on Twitter. My username there is Cioreo, and that's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. Mitchell, we know who you are, but tell the folks again who you are and uh, where they can find you on the internet if you want to be found. Sure. Yeah, I'm the co-founder of HashCorp, and I go by Mitchell H. everywhere on the internet. And I'm pretty active in responding, so feel free to ask any questions. And, and thanks for having me here. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.